Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is, well, it's December 14th, 2016. This is episode 1915 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a good one for you today. A returning guest, I think it's his third appearance on the show, Phil Williams, author, and uh, he's been on to talk about permaculture in the past. Uh, he's become a, quite a prolific author, and he has a new book out, and that book is called The Propaganda Project. It's pretty interesting. Our subject today is propaganda, patriotism, and universal morality. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about anarchistic philosophy as well. We've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about today. Phil is a great guest. I think you'll enjoy him, and we'll have him on in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys. What do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop BulkAmmo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSV members on top of it, check out BulkAmmo.com today and give them a shot at your business. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more, up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics, homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it, that type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. And our TSP business supporter of the business directory supporter of the day, I'm sorry, is Permaculture Trees, another business born out of the TSP community. They plan to add a new tree to their store each year. Right now, they're offering the pink silk tree, which is chosen for its ability to regenerate poor soils, coppice, or pollard for mulch, and provides nitrogen. They are offering TSP listeners a 10% discount. Search Permaculture Trees on the TSP Business Directory in order to order your trees today. And remember, you can find the TSP Business Directory at tspbiz.com and do business with other members of the community. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year, of course, is 1915 because the episode is 1915. Alex has two for us today. We have War Made New and Terrifying, and we have the Armenian Genocide. We also have notable births. Richard Webb, actor best known for Captain Midnight. I actually met this guy and he cared. That's Alex, not me, by the way, that met him. Les Paul, musician and inventor of the solid body electric guitar, is born this year, 1915. Frank Sinatra, singer and actor. I liked him in Guys and Dolls and Von Ryan's Express. In other news, England produces Little Willie, a prototype tank. It's not ready for prime time, but it's coming along. In Flanders Fields is published. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row. And Birth of a Nation is released. The film is about the KKK will be screened at the White House. That is Woodrow Wilson, Democrat. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read Ward May New, War May New and Terrifying. A couple quotes at the beginning. What in God's name are those things? What are they? 
a German NCO in the midst of exploding shells. And this is not war, it is the end of the world. An Indian-British soldier in a letter to his father. The dead lay everywhere in pieces or whole, rotting for days or months. The smell cannot be described. It is death simply to raise your head above the trenches. Most men are wearing cloth hats. Helmets are just coming online. Helmet or not, when the order comes to go over the top, you go, live or die. That is frightening enough, but imagine that you are the second line, seeing what just happened to the first. The whistle sounds. It's your turn now. Death is the end of suffering. Shells arrive in waves. The battlefield is awash in metal and poison gas. By treaty, gas is forbidden, but millions are dead already. So, the Germans wait for the wind to be right. In such a world, if such a word can be used, and pull the tops off the canisters. The gas creeps along the ground like an angel of death, claiming lives as it flows by. Some men run from the shelling. They call it shell shock. Later, they will call it battle fatigue. But the officers call it cowardice. Hundreds of soldiers are lined up and shot for desertion. No mercy. The French start rotating their troops out of the trenches, but how much more of this can the troops take? For those of us commanded to die, the whistle sounds for king and country. Over the top we go. My take by Alex Shrugged. The battles of World War I were actually much worse than I'm describing here. The Second Industrial Revolution brought more than prosperity. It created an infrastructure that allowed large armies to be fed, clothed, armed, and rearmed re re to the point where the complete destruction of a nation became possible. Bureaucracies broke down under the strain. Economic collapse was imminent, but it just didn't matter. For them, there was no tomorrow. But we know that tomorrow came. What emerged was ugly, bitter, disillusioned, and building up for a second round. The next time will be different. It always is. Reading that makes me think of one of my teachers I actually remember from high school and remember fondly. He was a history teacher named Mr. Larson. We spent a lot of time on World War I in his class, and I, I really believe it was more time than the state would have preferred. Um, I believe that he gave all of the conflicts more attention than you would think that it you would normally get in a high school history class. And I remember as we wrapped up World War One, he brought an old movie um, starring Ernest Borgnine in called All Quiet on the Western Front. And it wasn't like today's war movies. It's not like the stuff Tom Hanks did where you see the, the graphic, raw nature of war, but the... The reality, the brutality is in that movie. It's a, it's based on a book, and the book is is great. But for those that out, you know, maybe don't have time for the book, and, and you you know you, you get tired and weary of the crap that's on uh, that's on TV, uh, you might want to check out All Quiet on the Western Front. The movie, as far as I know, has been made twice. First time in 1930, uh, but the one I'm talking about was made in I believe 1970. Anyway, I'll look it up on. Um, Amazon, and I will make sure that we have a, uh, a link in the show notes if you want to check that out um, today. I don't think it's on uh, Prime Video, and I don't think it's on uh, Netflix or anything like that, but uh, the DVD, I just looked it up now while I was kind of stammering along there, $7.50, so it might be something you want to pick up for your library uh, and uh, and have around, because it is a true look at the horrors of World War One and If there's ever a war truly to teach us the futility, the stupidity of war, it was World War One. 
With that, on to better things. Let's bring on our special guest, Phil Williams, to talk about his latest book, The Propaganda Project, and many other things. With that, hey, Phil, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. appreciate you having me on. I'm glad to have you back on. You, you've been on quite a few times, actually, in the past, and, and we always have a good discussion when you're here. Uh, but for people that don't know who Phil Williams is, can you kind of take us back to, I don't know, Phil Williams sitting in study hall in 12th grade, trying to figure out what to do with his <laughs> life and how you end up where you're at today? Okay. Um, I grew up as an Army brat, so you know my family and, and, and I, we, we sort of lived all over places like you know, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, Fort Belvoir, Virginia, See, Panama, we actually did a pretty long tour in Panama. I know you, you were down there. Probably actually at the same time I was, because we were down there during the invasion. I don't know, were you down there at that time? Uh, actually, I went right after. I was, uh, I was in Desert Storm and then uh, came home and then was sent to Panama in 1990. Oh, okay. Yeah, we left in 89, so but yeah, we just missed each other. But um, so as a kid, I, I wanted to be a professional football player, and <laughs> it didn't take me too long to figure out that uh, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, it, I did uh, I did play for a small college, but I certainly wasn't going to the pros. And um, after college, I had had trouble finding a job. Apparently, I found out the hard way that uh, liberal arts degrees weren't really in very high demand. <laughs> so um, so at the time, I was mowing lawns for a living, and I was living at home. So not exactly uh, what I envisioned, what I had envisioned for myself after college, but um, but this was in 1998, right at the start of the housing boom. And uh, what ended up happening is the business just blew up. I really started to pick up lots of business, and I was able to kind of kind of build something that was uh, that did fairly well. And obviously, I got out of my mother's basement, which was nice. Um, and it took me about, I guess, it took about seven years to go from where, where I started with was a beat-up old Ford Ranger that my dad gave me to 30 trucks and about 50 guys uh, working for me. And then in, in 2007, I finally had a chance to, to sort of process and think about what I was doing. And I, wasn't, I really wasn't real happy with what I was doing. And, um, and I had an opportunity to sell. I had some concerns about the economy going forward. Uh, so I ended up selling the business in early 2008. And, um, and my wife and I, we moved to rural Pennsylvania not too far from where you grew up. Did you? I thought I heard you say at some point that you went to Minersville High School. Is that true? Um, I lived very close to Minersville High School, but I actually went to Pottsville High School. Uh, my grandparents okay. lived, gee, it's maybe a 100-yard walk to the high school entrance from their house. They're the first house um, north of the high school entrance on the, uh, I guess it's the west side of the street, which is the same side the high school's on. Okay, I coach it at Northern Lebanon High School football. Oh wow! Okay. And we actually, and we scrimmaged, and we scrimmaged Minersville. And I thought about you because the kids are tough. I was yeah. thinking, yeah, that's coal mining town. That's those kids are tough. You know, they come from the, you know, the the, the, the that that coal mining background. Which is the whole place cool. is tough. The only reason we didn't play them because we were like the two closest schools in the area is they were a three A school and we were a four A school. Uh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. But uh, anyway, so um, so you know, we moved up here to uh, you know uh, rural Pennsylvania, and we we purchased a six-acre south-facing hillside. I had this crazy idea that we would homestead, live off the land, you know, like throw in Walden or something. Of course, that that was pretty dumb, you know, because uh, as you know, and every all the listeners know, that self-sufficiency and growing your own food food is is really hard work, and it takes a lot of experience and skill. Uh, things that I didn't have at the time. And um, so basically I learned a lot by trial and error, a lot of error, and then 
finally, you know, getting some things right and still making mistakes even now. But, uh, but I did get better, and eventually I found permaculture. I took a couple of PDCs, um, did a lot of work here on the property, and eventually I became a permaculture consultant. And I was at the time, and I was doing a lot of writing in the winters. And, um, and then two years ago, I hurt my elbow swinging a corn knife, which sounds like not a big deal, but um, it was it was a real pain, and I, it was something I couldn't shake. It was basically like a tennis elbow, although I've never played tennis in my life. But um, but it took me about uh, two years and a couple of cortisone shots to actually get it to heal. And my knees have been hurting. I mean, I'm getting old like we all do. But um, that was kind of new for me. And I was, you know, because I've always been used to doing a lot of hard labor. And all of a sudden, you know, I felt like you know, I, I can't do this. I finally got a, a glimpse of, hey, you can't do this forever. And I, I figured I either need to make an investment into my business and get, you know, crews and trucks and advertising and do the whole thing, or I needed to, to really slow down. So I decided to stop advertising. And I, and I, so I wasn't doing very many consultations anymore as much as I, you know, as much as I really loved permaculture, I figured, I finally figured out that I didn't want to be a contractor anymore. Um, so basically what I did was I, I had been writing in the winter just, just basically for fun. My wife was pretty much my only reader and she, she liked what I was writing, but you know, I figured she was pretty biased. Um, but, um, but so I figured I'd give it a shot. You know, it's something I can do when I'm old and rickety. So I started writing to publish, and one of the things that one of the things that really bugged me as a reader is that most books are told from the statist perspective. It's always the police officer or the soldier or the top secret government, whatever, saving the day. And um, as a permaculturalist and an anarchist, I've tried to write books that reflect the reality of, of, of state-sponsored violence. So, and you know, publishing as a business is is extremely difficult. I think the most difficult business that I've that I've tried, but um, and, and there's been days where I was just where I feel like, hey, what the hell am I doing? But um, but I love the writing, and the response from the readers has been has been really great. And um, so now at this point, I'm just I take the odd permaculture consult for people that you know still uh, have my information, but I'm not I'm not actively seeking them, and I'm still obviously doing the homesteading thing and keeping up with stuff here. But um, so basically, I'm just writing and homesteading at this point, and I'm you know I'm pretty happy about it. Very cool. Before we dig into your, your latest book, um, just a quick question there. You are a self-publisher, correct? Yeah, I am. Okay. I'm an independent publisher. Yep. Just, just, are you, can you, would you mind saying what platform you're using for your books? Because I know there's a lot of people out there that you know consider this as an option. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that's interesting about independent publishing, and I'm a big fan of it because uh, – I did the research on what it takes to be to get together with a traditional publisher. You know, you've got to get an agent, and then you know, and the chances of getting an agent are pretty small, and takes you know, it can take years. And then, and then after you get an agent, then they try to sell your book, and then the chances of them selling your book is, you know, not very good. Um, and then if they do sell the book, then it takes you know another year for them to mess with it, and edit it, and all this work, and then finally you get it, you get it out there. And unless you're a big name, they don't put any money behind you. Um, so they're, they're expecting you to do all the work and it's like, and I'm thinking, why would I, why would I want to, you know, do their job for them and then take a tiny portion of the profits. But so the independent publishing has been really nice for me. So I do, um, so I, so basically I do all the same things that a traditional publisher would do. I, I have to hire an editor, I have to hire proofreaders, I hire a formatter to, to help me with the, you know, formatting the, the document for, um, you know, for the different, uh, digital formats, and then also for the um, print formats, um, and then obviously cover art and whatnot. You need 
if you want to do, uh, if you wanted to be professional and to stand next to the traditional and say, hey, that's just as good, you, you really have to, to do the investment and, and, and do all the things that they do. Um, and you can't, you know, and my, my books go through nine edits before they, wow. before they actually hit the, hit the, hit and say, okay, this is ready to, to be out there because I don't want to put anything out there that's substandard to where a reader might read that and then say, well, I'm not going to read any more of his stuff because, you know, it's, it's not good or it's, and especially as an independent publisher, I'm sensitive to that because there's that stigma still. Yeah. And I think it's both hanging around saying, oh, you know, these people that self-published don't have to write and blah, blah, blah. But, um, but basically I, um, um, getting out on the different platforms is, is fairly easy. There's a lot of ways to do it. Um, I, I direct, um, I, I, I get a file, which is a Mobi file from my formatter and I, and I publish that directly or I upload that directly to, to, to uh, Kindle direct publishing, which is KDP. And, um, and it's pretty simple. I mean, it doesn't take very long at all. Um, and she gives me a, a, a cover too, and I upload that. And then when I, with, for my print stuff, I'll go direct to uh, CreateSpace, which is also an Amazon platform. And um, she gives me a, a file, a different file for that. And, the, and the, the print books turn out really nice. I mean, they're actually a, a lot nicer than the digital stuff because your digital stuff has to has to sort of work for all the different platforms, you know. So you can get a little bit more fancy with the with print stuff. Um, so I go through CreateSpace, which is, you know, once you get the, the, the files and you just upload them, it doesn't take long at all. And then it's, you know, within 48 hours or so, it's on the, it's on all the stores. And it's not just in Amazon. It's in, you know, just about any store. You can imagine Barnes and Noble, whatever uh, you can think of. It's out there. And now it's not going to be in, in the stores, like in the physical stores, but it's in all the digital stores. Um, you can also use aggregators, which are like, um, Smashwords is a popular one. Um, and one I use for, um, uh, against the grain, one of the, one of my books I use an aggregator for, um, which you can upload to an aggregator, and then they will then they can publish to all you know a wide variety of sites, um, you know, without having to, to, to individually publish to each to each one. That makes it a little easier for some of the smaller sites that you don't get a lot of sales from, but you still want to get some exposure. Sure, so. sure. Well, that's really cool, man. And so, but on the hard copies, it's Create Space, which I think is what most of the folks in your your boat are doing right now. Um, this yeah. book is a new one. It's 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 different for you. I mean, you've written a few novels, cesspool, initiation. Uh, you've written some other nonfiction, but it wasn't like this. I mean, fire the landscaper, right? That was very much like a mm -hmm. how-to book. So this is like your first venture into like picking things apart uh, at a political level, I guess, from a a, a nonfiction standpoint, um, at least that I know of, and. In that book, what you did is you conducted a nationwide survey to try and measure the amount of propaganda that various groups have been subjected to. Can you explain how the heck you are able to do something like that, measure something like that that's like so subjective? Right, right. I mean, that was that my, the original, my original idea for the book was that I wanted to it's I wanted to to figure out a way to to compare different groups and and figure out. You know, to what extent people are are propagandized? I'm like, well, and I had the same question you did. I was like, how do, how do you even begin to 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 measure something like that? And I thought about what propaganda does to people, and what it does is it skews our judgment in favor of whatever the message is of the propagandist. So I was particularly interested in government propaganda, and government propaganda is meant to make us think more positively about government, government actions, and by extension, uh, government employees. Uh, and then the other thing is, is, and I think most importantly, it makes us respect the authority of government and, and, and respect the, respect it as legitimate. 
And even if it, even if that authority kind of goes against our individual values. So to determine the amount of government propaganda that we internalize sort of into our belief system, I, I, what I figured out was I needed a baseline question or a series of baseline questions. And so the baseline questions would be a question about a particular value or moral as it relates to the individual. And then immediately after I asked that particular question, I would ask almost the identical question, but I simply changed the actor to a government employee. And the extent to which respondents were hypocritical in their answers is the extent to which I believe they've been propagandized. So the more divergence a person has between their personal individual morality versus the morality they hold for government, the more propagandized I believe the person to be. Um, I'll give you an example for, of one of the question pairs. So the first question of the pair would say something like, um, please select the answer that best describes your viewpoint on the following scenario. So um, John is walking down the street and he sees a woman bound with zip ties being beaten by a man with a crowbar. John pulls the man, the man off the woman and the man attacks John with the crowbar. John takes the crowbar and hits him over the head, uh, killing the man. So you, have, so you end up with two answers to choose from. A, John committed murder by killing the man. B, John did not commit murder because he's protecting himself and the woman. Uh, so then the, then, the, then the very next question, and I put them in a series so that they would, I'm not trying to trick anybody. So the very next question is, Steve is driving in his car. He sees a man in handcuffs being beaten by a police officer with a baton. Steve pulls over and steps out of his car. He yells at the officer to stop. The officer continues to beat the man. Steve tackles the police officer. The police officer tries to beat Steve with his baton. Steve takes the baton and hits the officer over the head. The officer dies. So the answers are the same as the other ones. A, Steve committed murder by killing the police officer, or Steve did not commit murder because he was protecting himself and the man in the handcuffs. So um, what was interesting is a lot of the respondents were very hypocritical in this question pair. So 93% of the respondents thought it was self-defense in the first scenario, but that number dropped to 63% in the second scenario simply by changing the actors. So um, I know, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I know this is social science. I know that this survey is far from perfect, and in no way do I think that I can 100% accurately measure something like how much someone has been propagandized. But I do think that the survey has some merit in showing how Americans view certain issues and how standards differ for government versus the individual. So when you do something like that, how many people do you have to survey to be able to make some sort of a generalization to say, on average, across our country, this is how people think? Right, right. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I, when I did the research for this, and it's not near as many as you, you would think. And that, and that was the first thing I thought. I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this and make any sort of logical conclusions. But when I, when I did the research and figured out you know, how the statistics work, I guess to measure the population of the entire United States, which is roughly 330 million people, I needed at least 384 respondents to give me a 95% confidence level with a 5% margin of error. You know, if I wanted a, a better confidence level and a lower margin of error, I'd have to get more, but that's what I was, that's what I was trying to get. Um, however, if I wanted to measure like subgroups and make comparisons with that same 95% confidence level and 5% margin of error, I would need 384 respondents in each subgroup. For example, if I wanted to look at data for males and females, I would need at least 384 males and then 384 females. Uh, I can still make comparisons for groups with less than 384, but the margin of error goes up and the confidence level goes down. Um, I ended up with uh, a little over a thousand 
respondents for the survey. So I was able to actually make some, some interesting comparisons. Very cool. So what were the overall results? Um, based on the data, I put together uh, a profile for, for the most and least propagandized person in our society. So, um, so I took a bunch of characteristics and, and, you know, used all the data to figure out, um, based on their scores, who was more like what, what segments of the populations, you know, you know, had were more propagand were more propagandized or less propagandized. So the profile for the most propagandized person in our society was um, female, uh, over 45, white, Christian, uh, a government employee, Republican. That's an active voter. Sure. And then the least propagand yeah, which is interesting. And then the least propagandized person in our society was almost the exact opposite. So it was male, 18 to 44, non-white not religious, unemployed or student, not political, and doesn't vote. Um, another thing that was really interesting was that if I looked at all the characteristics I analyzed, the trait that showed the highest propaganda score was Republican, and the trait that showed the lowest propaganda score was someone that someone who identified as not political. So not independent, but main, not political, period. Not political, exactly. Um, so the main conclusion I drew was that the more engaged and successful we are in the system, the more likely we are to support it. If we're working, paying taxes, voting, and religious, we've likely been subjected to more propaganda. And the extent to which we're engaged increases the likelihood that we've, um, you know, enhanced the propaganda's effect by, you know, doing things like self-selling it or rationalizing it or, or engaging in, uh, in uh, uh, confirmation bias. So as you figured this out, can you talk about some of the common methods that you've seen used by the propagandists to influence people? Yeah, sure. I mean, this was this research. I thought this this is some of the stuff I found absolutely fascinating in the research that I did. Um, are you familiar with the book uh, The Crowd by Gustave Le Bon? Nope. Okay, it was. Um, well, I guess from my research, I guess uh, Hitler used a lot of the ideas in the crowd to craft the uh, the propaganda of the Nazi Party. Um, so it was. I guess it was written in the late 80, 1800s. Uh, it's a French book. And in the in the crowd, Laban uh, he detailed a simple but effective three-step method in which crowds are influenced, and that's um, affirmation, repetition, and contagion. So um, the affirmations they they need to be short and simple, and what he said was kept free of all reasoning. So something <laughs> like, you know, make, yeah, I know, I know. So. Um, So the obvious, you know, making America great again, uh, hope and change, those are effective affirmations. Um, and another thing that was interesting, he said that the affirmations have no effect unless they're constantly repeated. So, of course, it helps if you have the power of the media repeating your message over and over ad nauseum. And, um, and when an affirmation is sufficiently repeated and there's no, and then there's little, uh, counter messaging, you get what he would call a current of opinion. And then when you get that current of opinion, you get contagion. And then the contagion begins to work its magic, kind of spreading through the crowd like a virus. And, um, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, that's an example of an affirmation that's been spread through repetition and, and contagion without uh, any, without, with very little counter-messaging. So um, another thing that Lobon wrote about that I found really interesting was when dealing with electoral crowds, um, they're definitely influenced by the affirmation, repetition, and contagion, but with one additional wrinkle, and that's prestige. So um, mm. there are two types of yeah there's two types of prestige there's personal and manufactured uh, personal prestige is like a skill or an ability like being a good speaker 
Um, and um, personal prestige can actually be replaced by manufactured prestige, which is titles and wealth. And LeBon, actually, I had, I had this quote, and it's probably not exactly what he said, but he said something like, uh, there's a reason uh, people elect rich, connected politicians that are nothing like the common man. Uh, he said that uh, the common man doesn't possess uh, prestige among the people, which I thought was really kind of interesting. Um, so there are there there are tons of different uh, propaganda techniques and strategies, and I'll just go through a, a couple more that are really interesting. I want to uh, just stop strategy, you right there just to point something out yeah, before, yeah. before you go forward. Like, so it's interesting yeah. that yes, the the politicians that run for office always kind of throw up their accolades of how what they've done and what they've succeeded in their prestige and all. Yet they always also try to anchor it back to this bullshit about how they used to be the common man. Right. Right. Which right. plays into our the, the belief of, of, of the guy that's, you know, Cletus with a tow truck, but one day I'm going to be a millionaire. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it also makes me wonder, too, that, you know, people would say, oh, we, we just want the regular guy. But I think if we got the regular guy, I, I, nobody would want him. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, but that, that's, that is really interesting. Um, anyway, go so, um, you were saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so one strategy that is actually really, really effective is to present uh, one side of an issue through the mass media. Um, so, for example, in, in, in 1990, when George Bush Sr. sent troops into Iraq, the media produced news and coverage that supported the decision. And there was, a, according to a survey, only 23% of Americans who watched very little news in August of 1990 supported the invasion. On the other hand, 76% of Americans who, who often watched the news actually supported the invasion. So it, it's really, really very powerful. And that's one of the ways that the news media um, propagandizes us is they only show us the side they want to show us. They may not even necessarily be lying. But they're they're only showing us what they want us to what want us to see. Um, so another good strategy is using cognitive dissonance to influence people. And I know you know this, just, but for anyone out there who doesn't, um, cognitive dissonance is the mental stress experienced by an individual who holds two or more contradictory beliefs, ideas, or values at the same time. So basically, your mind wants to relieve the dissonance in the easiest way possible. So for the propagandists, they'll, they'll create cognitive dissonance by threatening your self-esteem. And then once the cognitive dissonance is created, it's used to influence the person to take you know, some sort of desired action. For example, um, you know, they might make a person feel shame or inadequacy or expose them as a hypocrite or, or maybe make a person feel guilty. Um, and those are all good ways to attack self-esteem. And then this self-esteem bashing creates this dissonance. And then the propagandist then offers a, a really simple solution to relieve the dissonance. So you can feel better about yourself if you just buy this car or support this war or give to this charity or hate that enemy or vote for this politician or whatever it is. Um, and a good example, a real simple example, would be those commercials, you know, that show the sad puppies that need a home. And, you know, I'm not saying they're necessarily bad. I'm just, they're, they're tapping into that guilt. And most people think of themselves as good. And, then they, you know, that dissonance runs into your mind. How can I be good if I'm not helping these poor dogs? And for some people, you know, this dissonance spurs them to, to action. Um, and, and throwing in a this little Sarah McLaughlin with arms of an angel, and yeah, yeah right. right. Even though the organization doing that advertising does absolutely nothing to actually help those dogs, and is a, a lobbyist, right. right? But but they they make you feel that, you know, right? Yeah, it works. It works. And um, and, and and in this book, you know, I was I was 
concerned about the, you know, the, a lot of the government, government stuff and war was something I was really looking at because war is something that creates a lot of dissonance. So that's a big problem for the government propagandists because, um, for example, um, in my research, I found that a week after the atomic bombing of Japan, there was an opinion poll that showed that 95% of Americans approved of the decision to use the atomic bombs. And then, and, and 23% of Americans felt that we should have actually used many more atomic bombs before allowing the Japanese to surrender. And then there was another poll from 1944 that showed that 13% of Americans were in favor of killing all Japanese men, women, and children. Um, so it's like, how do, how do we even get to the point where we think like that? And, I, and it's like, um, if we believe that we're good, how, do we, how can we square that dissonance where we can advocate the murder of an entire race of people and still feel like we're good? And how do we resolve the dissonance that we're good and we can advocate the murder of civilians? So um, the government propagandists, this is where the propaganda comes in, they were using dehumanization as, the mes- as their, you know, their method of resolving that dissonance. So through propaganda... Um, you know, they instill this dehumanization in, of, of the enemy and the public and as well as the, the men in the military. Um, so the Japanese were portrayed as less than human. They used a lot of caricatures of the Japanese as monkeys with fangs and things like that. Um, you know, today we're not doing that quite as we're – not, we're, not we're not as blatant as we were in the past. Um, and the last technique I'd like to mention is one that we use a lot today, and that's the appeal to fear. Um, the appeal to fear is is, is – is used to influence actions that are beneficial to the propagandist and then also contrary to the best interest of the individual. So, for example, obviously, you know, you use the Bush administration using the fear of terrorism to embark on a, you know, an endless war, and then Obama, the Obama administration following that up with the mainstream media. Um, and I'm sure Trump will continue that. So, um, and if we look at the statistics, we should be far more afraid of an altercation with uh, you know, our legal system and law enforcement than, than we should um, a terrorist. I mean, I, and one statistic that really scared me was almost one out of every three Americans has an arrest record. So I think of all the, the bad things that can happen to me, um, and, and getting arrested is pretty bad. Um, that is probably the, the, the most likely thing to happen to me in my life that would be really awful is that is the possibility of, of an arrest. Um, you know, not that I'm out there committing crimes, but you know, I was almost arrested here for just for having my 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 grass too long. So, it can happen. Uh, I've, I've been arrested, and I mean, I had a ticket uh, that wasn't paid. I I left money with a girl I was living with. This is way before I met Dorothy, and uh, she said she paid the ticket. Didn't pay the ticket. Was two and a half years right. later, got pulled over for a stupid little thing. Like I was gonna get, a, I was gonna get a warning. Not dude, you got warrants, and it ruined. You know, it wasn't the most traumatic thing that ever happened in my life, but it sure ruined a weekend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, that's that's the type of stuff that is uh, is, is is scary to me for sure. Um, the the last um, the other thing I want to say about fear is fear appeals are effective because they divert our attention from examining the issue to the actual fear itself. We become so focused on ridding ourselves of the fear and not actually examining the issue. So. Um, and in my research, I found that there's a lot of scientific evidence that supports the effectiveness of these fear appeals. So there's these two guys, they're researchers. Uh, one guy's name is uh, Darius Daniel. The other guy is uh, Richard Nalrat. And um, they did some cool, some pretty cool experiments. And this one, this one experiment they did, um, they provoked fear by um, blowing a police whistle at people. And then also 
so as it, so when a pedestrian jaywalked, they blew a police whistle, and then they also um, put on, on on cars. They would take the, they put this piece of paper that looked like a ticket on these people's cars. It was just an advertisement, but they but they they look it really looked like a ticket. So so what happened is there was an initial jolt of fear from the police whistle or from seeing the ticket. And then that was quickly relieved because there was, you know, no, there was no cop, there was no arrest, and there was, and the piece of paper was just an ad. So uh, what they found was that uh, immediately after the fear was relieved, um, the the researchers asked the, the the people to comply to comply with the request. And I think they they did something like they asked them to complete a questionnaire, or they asked them to give to a charity, or something like that. And they found that when the fear was provoked and then relieved. The jaywalkers and motorists were much more likely to comply with the request than those who jaywalked without a whistle or did not receive a fake ticket. Um, so what the researchers concluded was that the fear and the relief after after distracted attention from evaluating the request, resulting in um, in more compliance. So that was that. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, have you heard of the book um, The Age of Propaganda by uh, Prakkinis and Aronson? Yep. You do. You know the book. Huh? The, have you heard of the book uh, "The Age of Propaganda" yes. by Pratkinist? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, fantastic book. And in, and in their book, the um, they had a, a criteria for the fear appeal, like for the to have the most effective fear appeal, it has to cover four criteria. And number one was that it scares the hell out of people. Uh, number two, it offers a specific recommendation for overcoming the threat. And number three was the recommended action is thought of as effective for reducing the threat. And number four was the message uh, that the recipient, it was that the recipient believed that he could perform the recommended action. It was something that they thought that they could possibly do. Um, and I don't know, I, I've certainly, I, I remember a couple of years ago um, that I actually experienced this firsthand, this fear appeal, where I actually got a phone call um, from a guy that said he was um, from my local police department. And of course, as soon as I get a call from the police, you know, I'm already a little bit afraid. And the guy, um, so the guy sort of chuckled and he's like, yeah, don't worry, you're not in trouble. And then he proceeded to ask me to buy tickets to the policeman's ball. And so, so anyway, so I, I, I declined and he said something like, you know, police officers are still lives every day. You, you, you want to support our dedicated officers, don't you? Something like that. So in this instance, the telemarketer gained that instant credibility when he said he was from the police. He appealed to my, my fear by simply saying he's from the police, and then he immediately relieved my fear by telling me not to worry, right, that I'm not in trouble. So this made me immediately more compliant, like kind of like the jaywalkers we talked about. And then uh, when I said no, he used guilt to influence me by pointing out, you know, the ultimate sacrifice police officers make every day, the risking of their lives. And um, so I didn't buy any tickets, nor did I buy any tickets the three other times I received that call but um, but I felt compelled to, I have to be honest, and I'm sure they probably do really, really well with their telemarketing technique. It kind of felt like a, a legal shakedown with fear and guilt, you know, that I could just relieve with a simple purchase. Yeah, I mean, there's – it just makes me think of a, a lot of things that are like that, um, the, the way that it's a, like a push-pull, right? So – we go out with something that makes you concerned, and then like so you think of the people with the the tickets to me, probably the reason that they would be more likely is they just had this experience and they think, "Oh, I'm so lucky, 
And at the same yeah, time, they're thinking, right. I'm so lucky this, you know, because they, they, even though it wasn't a near miss, it feels like a near miss, right? It's like, I almost got right. hit by a car. Well, you didn't. You, it was nowhere near you. But since I'm fortunate now, this unfortunate thing in front of me, I need to do something about it. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but it's interesting how the mind works, for sure. Can we talk about some ways people can actually, like, avoid this? Because it, it's actually pretty obvious if you if you see it. If you notice it, right. if you take the time to pay attention. Right. I can tell you right now, I can't. I can't stop seeing it now. <laughs> but, Pattern recognition, um, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, there, there are things that you could do to um, avoid it and counteract the effects. Um, uh, one thing that we have to realize is that effective propaganda uh, taps into our emotions. So um, for the luxury car propagandists, they might be tapping into our envy or greed. The war propagandist is often using fear, like we talked about. And um, one thing that I, that, I, that I really think is that it's really important to beware of the message that makes you that makes you feel more than think. Um, another another way to avoid propaganda is just to simply stop watching television. Uh, when we and, and and this is something I thought was really interesting too is when we watch TV, we're in this kind of relaxed state and our guard is down. And these um, propaganda messages are often spread to us without any, without really much scrutiny from us at all. And um, it's it's my opinion that propaganda through entertainment is actually more effective than through news media. And I think it's one of the reasons why news media starts to kind of look like entertainment these days. Um, but the, um, the Department of Defense actually has an entertainment liaison office where they make sure the government is portrayed in a, in a positive light. And they, um, they, they, they actually work directly with Hollywood. So they'll get a script. And they'll make changes to things they don't like. If the producers accept the changes, the film or the TV show, you know, gets the support, equipment, and expertise of the government. If they don't, the movie or show has to be made without government support. Uh, and one thing they did say, which I thought was interesting, they do allow for some negative things like government corruption, but the corruption has to be solved by the end of the program by a government employee. So that's probably something that you can recognize just in, in things that you watch. Um, and I, and the last thing I'll mention is I think that I think using logic and reason to filter the truth from fiction is, is really important. Don't just accept what you're told or shown. You know, do your own research. Think for yourself. And that's what I really like about your show, Jack. And I think that's the number one message that I get from you is that you really want everyone in your audience to think for themselves. Absolutely. I mean, another thing I've always tried to do with any issue that you think you might be you know, influenced on is to simply reverse it or put in a substitution test. So, you know, we look at the U.S. bombing of Japan. And, mm -hmm. okay, so let's imagine that they were an ally, so Russia. If Russia had dropped the atomic bomb on Japan because they got there first, would right. we have felt the same way? Right. Um, or, or if it had been any other two countries that we had no direct attachment to, how would you feel about that? Would it be a war crime to wipe out, you know, downtown Tokyo with a single bomb? Right, and when you when you when you flip it around that way, then it, it it comes out a lot different because now you actually have to think about it rather than well you have this vested interest. And in I watch this show called um, Brain Games. Uh, it's on mm -hmm. one of the cable networks. I don't know one of the few that puts on shows worth watching. And they had a thing on where, and like 
I watched my whole family because we were like a bunch of people over. We just had to put it on to watch it. And I watched everybody fall right into it because I'm like, I see where this is going. And they said, like, if your name, and they're you know, talking to the audience on the other side of the TV, you know, if your name starts with, you know, A through N, you're on team one. And if you're, uh, you know, P through Z, you're on, or O through Z, you're on team two. And then they did a couple different things where these teams were competing with each other. And then they asked the question, you know, basically, did you feel like you, you know, like we're rooting for one or the other? And of course, Most people were. I'm like, I don't give a damn because right. I knew I knew what they were doing. But it was just right. like, so you were given a, a completely arbitrary reason to want one group or another group to do well. You don't know these people. You have no vested interest in them whatsoever. The minute this show's over, you're going to forget about it. But you're actually pulling for one side. And, and that is so easy to do. Then you add the sophistication of the government and media to that, and it becomes mass hysteria, basically, an entire nation calling right. for something that none of them as an individual would have decided for themselves had they not been led into it. Right, right. I, I think you're exactly right, Jack. When you start when you start switching the actors around and changing the, just changing the, having the same situation, but just changing the who's doing what, and then all of a sudden the biases start to, start to be glaring, I think. Here's an example. We have a, a couple that we're friends with. And they were part of this really big effort to ban fracking in their town and in their area of Texas. And the state had come out with a, a basically a law that said if landowners want to allow fracking, then landowners can allow fracking. And you can be wherever you want to be politically on that. But the town pa passed the ban, and the state said no, because you're infringing mm -hmm. on the rights of these landowners who have agreed to this and overturned it, and they were furious. And they're also, these, yeah. this couple are huge proponents of the Second Amendment. And what I said was, how would you feel had your town, against your wishes, banned your right to carry that the state of Texas protects? What would you want right. the state to do then? And what they looked like is they were trying to solve calculus equations in their head. Because right. Right. there's the conflict now. And it's, it's completely up front. Because you, know, you know the answer they want to give. But right. that answer is at conflict with – so instead of looking at it from a – the way, let's say, a, a court should look at it, if they're actually doing their job, not saying they do, we look at things with kind of pulling – again, pulling for our team, pulling for what we want without a concern for what might others want. Right, right. So you conducted a lot of interviews for this book. You conducted an interview with a retired Army officer, public school teacher – a Muslim-American corporate lawyer, a very successful entrepreneur. In the interviews, you ask questions designed to expose them to hypocrisies in their thinking, hypocrisies you believe were caused by propaganda. What did you learn from these interviews? And with that diversity, was there still a common thread? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was really interesting. Uh, first of all, all the people that I interviewed were highly intelligent, successful people. So definitely on the, on the upper end of our society, I think. And, But I found it really fascinating how each person's background uh, affected their viewpoints. So everybody was everybody was fairly biased. So, for example, the retired infantry officer he was you know he defended soldiers in the military when I asked questions about the Vietnam War in Iraq. Uh, the teacher and nonprofit consultant was was concerned about how the disabled and disadvantaged would be cared for, you know, in a, in a stateless society. The um, the Muslim American corporate lawyer 
he actually had a he, he had a very large uh, taxable income, but he had trouble admitting that taxation is extortion because, and he actually told me this. He's like, well, you know, I grew up without much money, and I took advantage of those benefits. And to be honest with you, I had respect for his for his uh, consistency in that regard. Um, on he was actually well. What other thing that was interesting about him? He was able to assign. He had no problems assigning culpability to poli- to the politicians and military. Um, and the military that have killed civilians that look like him in the Middle East, whereas the um, the retired army officer could couldn't do that. Um, so I thought that that was you know obvious, but also interesting. Um, the uh, the entrepreneur, which this is kind of interesting to me, is the entrepreneur. He's probably paid more in taxes than the, the other three people combined, I would imagine. But um, but he couldn't admit that taxation is extortion. Uh, early in the interview, he described himself, and he comes from a he actually comes from a military family. He wasn't in the military, but he comes from a, a long line of, uh, you know, of military people, and he's in his, you know, in his family and whatnot. And early in his interview, he described himself as very, very patriotic. And I wonder, and it made me wonder if if his mind was kind of repelled by the idea of taxation being extortion, because for him to admit that, he'd have to admit that he's been robbed for a hell of a lot of money, which would be you know, unpleasant for someone that you know loves his country. It would be kind of like okay. I love this person, and then I just found out they've been stealing from me for my whole life. So I think that that might be difficult to accept. Maybe that's a leap, but that was something that crossed my no, mind. No, I, I think that's the, the, the primary reason most people um, in their heart of hearts can't accept that it's extortion because, well, we're the good guys, right? We're right. the good guys. Right. We're, we're the greatest nation in the world, you know, and – Right. It, 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 and it's always been that way, and it can't possibly be that 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 everything that is government is because there's there's kind of a if you say that if you admit that you've really you've swallowed the red pill. There's no right. going back. It, it seems yeah. like a subtle thing, but it is one of those key point questions that once you once you say, well, yes, taxation is extortion. Then you've delegitimized everything about the state forever. Right. There can be no yeah. state as we know it. You could have a a voluntary state, right, with programs that you can participate in if you want to and pay for, and maybe they can be run in some yeah. kind of a publicly. Thing. But you can't have a coercive state, and there's never been anything right. but one. So you're basically saying, are you willing to become an anarchist? And right in their heart of hearts, I think they know that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is really interesting, but you're right. You you, you can't go back from that, and uh, it it starts to it starts to to cloud not cloud, but it, it almost it, I guess a better way of putting it, it starts to illuminate every other thing that you're doing, and, and you start to see things in a completely with a completely different lens than prior uh, when you thought that taxation was perfectly legitimate way for uh, something to be funded. So during the interview with the entrepreneur, he was one of these guys that he argued. We're free because we can always move to a different country if we don't like it. And at one point he said, if you think we're so oppressive here, move to Costa Rica. What do you <laughs> think about that argument? At least he didn't say Somalia. Yeah, that, yeah he was, I don't he know what it is, man. Everybody bit. wants me to go to Somalia now because they, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right, Somalia. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he he actually got he actually got a little – I was pressing him. I, was try, I tried to do these things. Respectfully, you know, and, and try to be, you know, respectful of everybody. But at the same time, I was trying to get them to to answer these questions directly, yeah. and that was kind of hard at at certain times. But um, it made me his argument. And I remember playing back the 
the interview because I taped everything and then I transcribed it in the book is it made me think of that scene from the movie Office Space. You know, the Michael Bolton character, he's complaining about his name and his buddy senior says something like, you know, why don't you just change your name? And then Michael says, no way, I'm not the one who sucks, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and uh, and so it's kind of like that. It's like, well, why should I leave? I'm not the one committing violence, you know? It's a, and it's a common argument that I hear, but it's like, if you change the actors around, the flaws become, you know, pretty apparent. It's like, it's like, think of the kid that's being bullied at school. Instead of stopping the bullying, you, you know, school officials say, you know, you should just quit whining. You can, you're free to go to a different school. Um, even though you're not. But, right? Yeah, but even it though could you're be not, worse. Right, Look exactly. at the bully Jimmy has. Jimmy's bully right. is much bigger and much meaner than your bully. Right. right. That's a probably better, that's a better uh, analogy. But uh, the example I gave the entrepreneur was a slave that was complaining about slavery. And you tell him to quit complaining that he can always move to Canada. Um, of course, that the analogy didn't work. So I tried the analogy of a, of a mafia organization that provides services and then takes 10% of the revenue of a town. And then ultimately the entrepreneur, this is exactly what he said. He said, whether it's the mafia or the government, if you choose to live there, you have to abide by the rules. And so, um, so that wow. in my opinion is the power of the propaganda. The propagandists end up defending, you know, the propagandists. See, people would think maybe the entrepreneur would be the least susceptible to that because, you know, they earn their own living and, and what have you. But right. really astute entrepreneurs in this society have learned to use this system for right. their Absolutely. self-enrichment. And disrupting that system is a disruption to their income stream. You know, there's, there's not a lot of highly successful entrepreneurs that that are, you know, one-man shows or something like that. Generally, there's contracts, there's negotiations, there's, you know, agreements with government bodies. There's protection provided by government bodies to what they do. Mm-hmm. The permit they have to buy that's expensive since they're not successful, they don't care. That's a great thing because you would have to buy it to start competing and you can't afford it because you're brand new. Um, things like right. that. So there actually is a, a much more, because everybody thinks, you know, the Galt Gulch thing or whatever, and not all our entrepreneurs think that way. Right, right. And and this guy, he's uh, he, he was, he's from the D.C. area, so um, a lot of his customers are, you know, people that are wealthy off the, oh, off the yeah. D.C. ground. Yeah, there's so, a, I mean, there's certainly that, too. A D.C. entrepreneur is probably different than, let's say, a, a, a Dallas-Fort Worth entrepreneur. And that, oh, you know, because yeah. Because they're tied right. into that. that fe- and it's, that, it's not just government. It's a federal government, man. I mean, that's – and there's oh. big money there. I mean, to be right. fair, Absolutely. if you want money, it was – I used to uh, to manage a sales territory that was from Virginia to Maine and over to Ohio, and mm-hmm. I'm telling you that that DC that DC area there was a lot of money that came in contracts out of there. Yeah, it's crazy. I think it's like uh, there's like, I think five of the rich five of the top six richest counties are in that that DC Virginia Maryland area. Really, I mean it's it's ab- it's absolutely insane. And um, I can tell you, right, I, I, from experience, I had my, my landscaping business was in the D.C. area. There is no way I would have made the money I could have made, I made there where I live now. I mean, I would yeah. be scraping by just like every other landscaper here. The only reason why, you know, I'd like to think that I was a smart entrepreneur, but I know that a big part of my success was just the area I was in. You know, what's interesting is, like, the guy said, well, like, move to Costa Rica. And I think about Costa Rica and go, not that bad a place. Not as free right. as here, but not that bad. So, you know, if, 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 you know, kind of, I would kind of ask the guy, well, so let's say I was living in Costa Rica and I was complaining about my freedom and they said, well, look at Iran, right? If you don't like it here, move to Iran. What would you tell the guy in Costa Rica? 
Yeah, because exactly. it's, it, it's again, it's the reversal thing. It's like you're so cemented into this. And I think the biggest piece of propaganda is this this concept that America is the best. And I think in many right. ways, there's a lot of things we are best at. The and then there's areas we fall short. Well, let's just say that we were. Right, even though we're not. Let's say we were the best in education, even though we're not. Best in, you know, healthcare, even though we're not. Let's say right. we're the best in everything. That doesn't mean that it, it's still not wrong, or it still doesn't suck, or it's still not oppressive. You know, right. you could have had the best slave master in all the South, but you're still right. a slave. Right. Absolutely. So there's a lot Absolutely. going on in your book interviews: survey, history, psychology, philosophy, even a parable that you turn into a cartoon. Uh, what is the main idea behind the propaganda pro propaganda project? Um, I know you're probably familiar with the experiments conducted by Stanley Milgram. Are you are you familiar yep. with them? Yeah. So his experiments um, show the biggest problem that I wanted to tackle with the book. Do you mind if I go through the experiment real quick? No, go ahead out because I'm sure there's plenty of people going who. <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, I think his work is. Unbelievably important, but um, so so with the experiment that he the experiments that he was doing, um, individuals were brought into 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 a lab, and they were and they were told that they were studying memory. So there were three people involved in the experiment, and they were the uh, the learner, the teacher, and the experimenter. So uh, the learner posed as, as as another volunteer, but he was actually an actor. Uh, the learner was hooked up to this electroshock machine. The teacher, who was the only real volunteer and the subject of the experiment, was instructed by the experimenter to ask the learner a series of questions. So when the, when the learner answered incorrectly, the teacher was instructed by the experimenter to give them a, an electric shock. So the shocks increased in strength as the questioning and incorrect answers went on. So as, they, as, they, as he answered more and more incorrect answers, the voltage went up and the, um, the shocks uh, increased. And the actor could be heard, and the, the actor was in a separate booth, but you could, you could, but the um, the uh, uh, the teacher could hear him, you know, crying out in pain and whatnot every time he gave him a shock. Um, and then as the voltage went higher, the the, the screams got worse and worse. Um, after after a while, he's like banging on the wall, complaining about his heart. Um, and then after a while, after that, basically all responses from the learner stopped. So I mean, for all the for all the teacher knew, he the guy was dead. Um, so the results of the experiment showed that about two-thirds of Americans will shock someone to death simply because someone in authority told them to do so. Um, they also ran, this is kind of interesting too, they ran variations of the test that showed a scenario where the experimenter who had this lab coat was called away and he was replaced with someone without the lab coat. And in that scenario, compliance went down from two-thirds to 20%. <laughs> So it's my belief, yeah, so I thought that was huge. So it's my belief that this respect for authority is to blame for uh, a lot of the atrocities. So, that the, so the 250 to 300 million people that have been killed by democide or death by government in the last 100 years, I think it's, it doesn't happen without this respect for authority. And um, with this book, I wanted to show how people go along with and even support the atrocities committed by government, whether we're talking about taxation or genocide, you need the propaganda to make it work. Um, but back to the original quest question, um, the purpose of the book is to break through the propaganda and expose uh, one simple truth, that all government authorities are legitimate. They don't have the moral authority to kill, steal, kidnap, cage, extort, or assault any more than we do. So in the book, I attack government with historical research, 
uh, morality, philosophy, scientific research, psychology, and even a couple of allegories. Um, a lot of research went into this book, over 100 sources, uh, 662 footnotes. And I did this because I know I'm dealing with a controversial topic, and I know that people will be looking for you know, ways to discredit um, the message of anarchism. But I thought it was really important to try to do this, um, not just from, a, from a, a, an opinion standpoint, but something that's really well-researched. Very cool. And let, let's talk a little bit about this uh, cartoon of yours. Okay. Yeah. Did you Have you had a chance to watch it yet? Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Oh. Tell, tell people about oh, cool. it. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so I had this – so, it, so it's, it's based on an allegory that I wrote in the book. Um, and it's basically – because I'm dealing with some, some pretty, uh, you know, some pretty dim topics and, you know, pretty, some pretty scary stuff that for comic relief, I have a couple of allegories in the book just for fun. And basically, the idea I came up with was like, well, so I thought about it. I have this guy, you know, and he, 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 he's a baker, you know, and he works really hard. He does a good job for his customers, and, you know, he wakes up super early, bakes fresh bread. He, he spends a lot of time, and, he, you know, he's nice to his customers. And, you know, the customers come and support him, and they buy his bread and, you know, support his business. So one day he kind of gets tired of it. He's like, you know, I'm sick of waking up so early. I'm sick of, you know, doing all this stuff. I'm tired of being nice all the time. So basically, he, you know, he he starts serving day-old bread, and he just gives them crappy white bread, and, and basically, you know, we know what happens in a in a free market. The people just stop buying the bread. So he gets the idea that, um, you know, he's he's upset. He's going to lose his business. He's like, well, I'm just going to make people buy my bread. So so basically, he goes down the the rabbit hole of trying to run his business like the government, and that's you know that's when all the fun starts. So. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, it makes me laugh. I think it's hilarious. It was very yeah. well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And like I said, I'll make sure there's a, a link in the show notes. And then uh, you sent me your book. You also sent me another book that you wrote. Um, the name is escaping me right now. Against the Grain. What's that? Against the Grain. Against the Grain, yeah. Let's, let's just give a little synopsis of that one, because I'm actually reading that right now, and I think it's a pretty damn good book. Oh really? I'm glad, I'm glad that you're I'm glad that you're taking time to read that. Um, yeah, it's uh, I had this idea. Um, this was a couple of years ago that I was I, I, I kind of wondered what it would be like if if a kid grew up in an environment where they weren't subjected to any propaganda, where you know where they weren't raised with uh, state you know education, where where even the caregiver was very philosophical and understood all these things, so taught the kid in a way that they were. You know, very much, uh, you know, not uh, interfered with by all these outside, um, you know, propaganda, and they were really taught to think for themselves. And then, so I thought, okay, you know, that would make a good story. And then, of course, you know, you, you got to throw them into all these things like high school and everything else, and then see what, what, uh, you know, what he thinks is ridiculous, and, and you know how how difficult it is for him to conform and whatnot. So it ended up making a, a kind of an interesting story, and um, and people have been, I mean, it's been. I, you know, it was my first actual uh, printed or published novel, but I mean, it's been people have been really nice about it. I mean, it has uh, it has like 65 reviews on Amazon. It's like 4.8 out of five, so on the rating, which has been fantastic. And people have been really super nice about it. And I think it's 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 kind of a nice soft sell to anarchism because I'm I'm not I'm showing I'm doing the whole you know I'm doing the fiction writers thing is I'm showing the violence of the state. I'm not actually I'm not actually telling people that the state is bad. I'm showing it. And that seems to resonate with people that are not anarchists at all, that, you know, people resonate with the story and see the, the pain that, you know, that this kid goes through. 
Um, and I think that that, that, that touches people and, that, and that's been, that's been really great. Yeah. It, it seems to me that people never have a hard time, at, you know, seeing many things. I wouldn't say all things, but many things that the state does as wrong. And then it right. amazes me how quickly they turn around and defend it. And I, I think it's mainly because right. one is propaganda and the other is they can't conceive of a world without it. You know, we always get to how would we? And my response right. to that is always, well, we might start getting some answers if we started to actually ask that question in a way other than to shut up the person that's bringing up the objection, right? Because that question is never a sincere – well, I shouldn't say never because never is an awful big-ass word. It, the majority of right. times when it comes from somebody you're having this discussion with that's defending the state, it's never a genuine question. You know what I mean? It's, right. it's not like they have a sincere desire to examine how we might handle – conflict resolution without the state because if you do that one well right. do you know that there are binding and non-binding private arbitrators and they actually resolve the majority of conflict and business contracts right now right uh right so why yeah, couldn't help those same system- yeah why couldn't those same systems resolve conflicts between neighbors over a fence and might they not come to a better conclusion and a a more amicable conclusion since both parties are actually you know being their their needs are being put ahead rather than because what the state says is code says you can have a fence like this you shut up code says you can't have a fence like this take it down and pay a fine that's what the state right. the state has no interest in actually resolving the conflict it has an interest in doing what enforcing the will of the state which is whatever code and law says and right absolutely i just think most people don't get that but when you point out like well look what cps did taking this kid from the, the parent because the kid walked down the street a half a mile Well, that's horrible. Right. Well, then maybe we should get rid of CPS. Oh, we can't do that. And it's it's right. like, do you hear the words coming out of your own mouth? Because I don't know that you do, or, or that word doesn't mean what you think it means. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, how can people find out more about you and uh, get your books and all that good stuff? Um, well, the uh, everything's on Amazon um, now. Against the grain, you can actually get for free on my website. So, if you go to philwbooks.com. You can actually download the book for free. Um, now it is it is something that I'm using for uh, like my mailing list sign up, um, but I, I would highly recommend. I mean, you can unsubscribe obviously, but um, I would highly recommend getting on my mailing list because I send out a I only send out an email like once a month, but um, pretty much my mailing list will end up reading my books for you know a lot of times free, um, sometimes just 99 cents. But um, it, it's definitely worth it. A good way to, to to keep up. I've got I have I have seven books out now. And I've got an eight that's going to be coming out in February, and I'm working on a series right now. So I've got a lot of stuff in the pipeline, and, and people that are on my list will have a chance to get that, you know, first, and, and also for a lot cheaper than what the, you know, the final retail price is. Very cool, man. And uh, I'll have links to all that stuff, and I'll also have links to your author page on Amazon uh, in the show notes today for people to follow. And again, the website, folks, is. PhilWBooks.com. It actually sounds good. Phil W. Books. It's, you sound like a publisher there, dude. Phil W. Books. Brought <laughs> to you by Phil W. Books. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. Hey, can I mention uh, one more thing real quick? Sure. Um, just, uh, just so everybody knows, uh, my fiction does have adult content and language. Okay. The nonfiction has a little bit of bad language just from the interviews, but it's mostly clean. But just as a disclaimer, you know, I don't know. I know there's people out there that get offended by that stuff. Ben, but, ben about it, you know. 
did a person that has a compound fracture should yell Hoover Dam, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. Some people are like, I know exactly where that's from, and some people are like, what the heck is that? If you know, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. In other words, you want your fiction books to be realistic um, right. and for the age of the characters and things like that. So, uh, But I would say if you have little ones and you want something of Phil's to, to read to them, Farmer Phil's Permaculture uh, was pretty damn good. I would have to even say badass. My my uh, grandson loves that book. So, oh, thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. I, I love hearing that. I actually like hearing that kids like like the the kids book more than hearing about the the adult stuff. I just think it's so cool to have well, a little kid. It's a kid good enjoy book. It, and, and I mean, the other thing you've got the you know the hunt for the stuff in it, and it, uh, it, like the big thing is like I don't know. Some of these authors that are like well-known children's book writers that have whole series with real publishers, like, I don't know, do they get, I was going to say get high and then write a book, but then it would be better. It's like, you, 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 bought, you get these books for your kids, you know, and you read them to them and you go, that was terrible. That was absolutely, right. I mean, some of them are just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a 12 page book and there's one sentence on each page and it's like, and then Billy went to sleep. Really? Like you gave it an actual story, that, but but brief enough the kids stay interested, and it was it was very good, dude. Thank you, I appreciate that, Jack. All right, folks, and with that, uh, we'll say uh, thanks to Phil for being on the air with us. And you know, man, whenever you got something new, just fill out a uh, another guest form. We'll have you back on. Thanks, Jack. Well, really great interview with Phil as always, and I do hope we'll hear more from him in the future, and I kind of think we will. Anyway, uh, with that wrapped up, let's talk about uh, how you can help support this show if you like the work that we do here. You can do that the best way is by joining the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. To become a member of the Support Brigade, it's easy. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members, and you can read about all the great benefits you get. And at the bottom, you can sign up. You can sign up with PayPal. You can pay with Bitcoin. You can uh, pay by mail with check or money order or cash. And you can even pay by silver. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, active duty, or prior service, or any first responder like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me with jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code to get you that discount. Remember, you have to do that before, not after you join. Sometimes people get upset about that, but you guys are supposed to be procedural, and that's the procedure. And I'm not being a hard ass. I'm really not. It's a system. Like, I just can't make it go backwards. It goes one direction only. Anyway, uh, the other way you can help support this show is by doing your Amazon shopping, and there's a lot of that going on this time of year at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com and then just click a link, you'll end up on Amazon. You don't have to do anything else. There's no jumping through any hoops or anything like that. You just go buy your stuff on Amazon. I've been getting some questions, too. Like, those of you that shop on your mobile device and you use the Amazon app, when you click tspaz.com or any of my Amazon links, what it ends up doing is opening the item or the page in the app. And do do I get credit if that happens? Yes, as long as you go to tspaz.com first. Does it matter uh, if it's in the app or in a native browser? You do get cre you do give credit to the Survival Podcast for your order. Um, I have a lot of stuff that I review. Uh, you can always find that at TSPAS too. You can just click on the, the link to see the current item of the day. Today is a product by a company called Fermentum, F-E-R-M-E-T-E-M. -E -E it's an eight-piece fermentation kit, and it's basically a bunch of lids for wide-mouth ball jars. There's a lot of different products on the market. Here's why I like the Fermentum ones. Number one, they're waterless. 
Uh, you don't have to worry about keeping water full in them when you're doing your ferments with your pickles or your chutneys or your relishes or whatever like that, whatever food you want to uh, preserve and enhance by fermentation. You put the lid on and you're done. You walk away and you make sure your food stays under the brine and you're golden. That's all it takes. And uh, the other reason is while there's some other lids out there that are waterless, they're expensive. They're like 20 bucks for one. And like, geez, I'm not doing that. I'm sorry. This is an eight-piece kit, meaning you get eight lids, and uh, it comes out to $33. And that comes out to uh, $4.12 a piece. So they're four bucks a pop. And they're really great lids. They last a long time. I've been using them. And it was it was you know, kind of spawned by the fact I got an email from a listener said hey you re recommend this great fermentation crock but I don't want to make you know a couple liters of sauerkraut I want to make you know a jar of this and a jar of that I want to play with all this stuff like if I'm going to use jars what's the most foolproof way so you know I was going to say you know do the old coral hole and throw the beer airlock in thing but it's not foolproof it really isn't and it's not without its flaws. So I started looking at the different pre-made jars that were available. When I found these, I knew I found the right ones. I got a set for myself, and I am very, very impressed with them. And if you read the article that I have up today at T-Spast, you'll see a thing in there. I'll have to do it as a standalone product anyway uh, someday, but they're called Sour Stones. And they're a large glass fermentation weight. They fit right in the, the mouth of a large glass, uh, large mouth glass mason jar, and they hold everything under the blind. They do, Brian, they do a great job of it. They pair up nicely with this. I'd like to bounce this off you. Do you know someone that would like to get into fermentation that you're thinking about a Christmas gift for? Four jars is, is quite a bit making at any one time. I don't know how many people need to do eight jars at a time. You might just get yourself a set of these, two sets of the star stones. They're, they're, they're sold in four and four and gift half of it to someone else in your family. And maybe you guys can play with your fermentations together. That would be a cool thing. But again, as always, whether it's this or anything else, if you do your shopping through for Amazon through tspaz.com, you'll support the show that you listen to daily. And it's a, it's a small thing to do to support the work that we do here. And it doesn't cost you anything, which is what I really love about it. Uh, there's not really a good reason not to, if you like the show. And if you don't like the show... Why do you listen? And that doesn't mean you should go out and buy stuff on Amazon just to support us. When you're going to shop on Amazon, use T-Spaz. That's all we ask. So that brings us to our uh, song of the day. I'm going back to Christmas themes. We are headed headlong into Christmas. We're 11 days away. You guys, the kids out there, they're probably making chains or something like this. Does anybody do that anymore? When I was a kid, it was usually Thanksgiving. My, my sister and me would make a chain. We'd use construction paper, red and green, and we'd do one link for every day till Christmas, and we'd hang it up by the Christmas tree. And then every day we would go out and cut a link off it. Ah, oh, the magic of being a child, you know, the belief runs deep in the mind of a child. That's a cool little thing you can do with your kids. It would be a shorter chain, but you could still do one. Really easy. You cut a strip, you make a loop, you glue it together, you make another one, you just keep doing it. I don't know where we came up with it. I don't know if anybody else does that, but we used to. I like Christmas, if you can't tell. I, I really do. I know I'm supposed to be Mr. Survival and all that, and, and in some ways I am, but in other ways I'm just a human being. And Christmas is just kind of a magical time of year. There's something else that I've grown to love. Many of you know that I grew up in Florida and Pennsylvania. I kind of split my childhood between those two. And there's a lot to like about the Northeast. But I've also lived in Texas now for over 20 years, and I love the South. I really do. There's a lot to like about the South. There's times in August where you're like, why do I live here? But then the rest of the year reminds you, and the people remind you, Dixie is a pretty great place. 
This is a Christmas song, but it's kind of a unique Christmas song. It's not something you generally hear as a Christmas carol. It's by the greatest country music band of all time, in my opinion, Alabama, and it's called Christmas in Dixie. May it bring a little spirit to you if you're having trouble getting into the Christmas spirit, because down here in Dixie, one of the problems we have is it just doesn't get cold and snow. That cold and snow kind of resonates with, hey, it's winter, it's Christmas, but Sometimes there's even snow in the pines in Dixie. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.